sisters. <clears throat> Let's open up our Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8. We're going to be examining verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 13. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat foods offered to idols? And so by your knowledge... This weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much, yet again, that we can come uh, to your house and to worship you in spirit and truth. And we pray now as we would turn our hearts to the word of God, that you would incline our hearts indeed towards the testimony of your holy scripture. You would unite our hearts to fear your name and to have reverence and awe at the power and clarity of the word of Christ himself driven to us, O God. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us a ten of ears to hear and to receive with gladness the word of the living God. Help me to preach with power and boldness. And oh God, may it be that you would wash us and cleanse us of our sins and help us now to come together with clear consciences, eager and desirous to have imparted to us the word of life. Through Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in our introduction, we must reflect back upon our previous sermon concerning this very pertinent topic of foods that have been sacrificed to idols. And remember that we discussed the fact that it was very ancient common practice in paganism to present an animal in sacrifice to a false pagan deity to then have this animal's body burned up in worship and then to have the remaining parts that were not burned up returned back to the family or to that individual for consumption. And this was a very common ancient practice that had most likely been instilled and inundated into many Corinthians. And there were evidently some within this church that still struggled as to whether or not in good conscience they could, could in fact partake of these meats that had been sacrificed to idols. There were weaker Christians who couldn't handle in their conscience the idea of eating meats that were so closely tied in and associated with their former paganism. They simply couldn't disassociate the fact that they had lived prior to Christ. They had lived their entire life worshiping false idols through the means of offering meats in sacrifice and therefore, evidently, their consciences were yet still troubled. And then there was the supposed stronger Christian in Corinth who was declaring that certainly every believer 
had the same level of knowledge within the church. Every believer had the same understanding in terms of comprehending the fact that no real idol exists. There is only one God. These idols have no real existence and therefore go right ahead and indulge in these meats. Stop being prudent. Stop being so naive. Get with the program. You're a Christian now. Put off your old association with idols and enjoy the liberties within the Christian life. Well, of course, the Apostle Paul takes issue with this. And we know that Paul, in pastoral form, rebukes the supposed stronger Christian. Now, Paul, of course, knows, and we all know, that really this, is not, this isn't proper conduct within the household of God. You aren't to operate from that level of condescension and presumption concerning your brother. Love bears all things. Love builds up. Love for the church necessitates you doing all that you can in regards to accommodating your brother in their desire to keep a good conscience before God and to keep pure and undefiled worship to God. And Paul understood, of course, that it is not simply a given that every Christian within the church would see clearly in this way, that they would see clearly with a clear conscience that there is, in fact, full permission granted to the Christian to eat meat or to refrain. Really, there has been full permission given to the Christian as to whether you eat meat or whether you refrain. But rather, there would be some who would still have, as we've said, the connotations of their former life as preeminent in their thinking and conscience and therefore would still become defiled in their conscience. It was quite arrogant and presumptuous for the Corinthians to even assume that every Christian would be operating from the same playing field, that they would be unanimously settled on this issue of meats offered in sacrifice. So we enter into our text now in the middle of this discussion where Paul is still responding to this inquiry uh, concerning these issues that were brought to him by the Corinthian elders. Remember, we discussed last time that Paul is actually just responding to a, a plethora of questions that were posited to him by the Corinthian elders. So we see in verses 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. So herein, Paul is addressing a standpoint or maybe even a paraphrase of a statement posited to Paul from these elders. Now, the elders suggested food does not commend us to God. We are no better off if we eat and no worse off if we refrain. So in other words, to these elders, food is morally neutral. There is nothing intrinsically moral about partaking of foods or not. It's not as if we eat these foods and then not these foods that we are commending ourselves to the Lord more than other foods. So God isn't more pleased with the vegan than he is with those who eat meat. 
But of course, the point is here is that you can eat these meats offered to idols in sacrifice, or you can refrain from eating. But God isn't moved by either option. Either option is not more favorable in the sight of God. That was the thinking of the Corinthians. It's like if you remember a while back when the Corinthians said, probably the elders, they declared that food is for the stomach. In the stomach, for food. You see, they believed that they weren't dealing in the realm of sheer neutrality on these matters. Food is just sustenance for the body. <clears throat> so the weaker Corinthian needs to acknowledge this and take off these arbitrary and unnecessary shackles of slavery and just stop being so weak. Well, you remember, and we have to remember, that nothing in life really is neutral. You see, the elders were, were off base with this. I mean, anything can be taken to excess. An abundance of good gifts from God can be spoiled if used, pro if used poorly, if mishandled or utilized for the wrong reasons. But I believe that there is a severity to all of this. There is a Severe uh, uh, seriousness to this that may be in a category altogether different. I mean, I don't believe Paul is merely speaking about spoiling good gifts from God by using them in excess or anything necessarily like that. Now, there is something we touched on last month and something that we will see developed later on in this epistle where Paul brought up again the fact that there is no neutrality when it comes to these foods that have been offered up in sacrifice. Remember, these foods, they were, they were offered over in sacrifice to false gods in which Paul says, really, they had been offered up to demons. They were given over to the realm of demonic activity, the realm whereby these sacrifices were a conduit for all kinds of demonic activity demonic influences, and possibly even demonic possession. Now, let me remind you again, as I did last time, what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. So I believe there are layers of concerns here from Paul with the standpoint that the Corinthians have on eating whatever you want because you have the liberty to exercise yourself in any lawful manner you like as a Christian. And of course, good gifts can be tarnished, like eating and drinking in excess. But there is a very dire and serious reality that these pagan sacrifices of being offered to demons, which adds a level of severity and concern in ways that I believe surpasses merely utilizing good gifts in inappropriate ways. There's a severity to all of this that is altogether different than that. So we go on then in verses 9 and 10. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? 
Now, as we can see here, there still is the permissibility from the Apostle Paul for Christians to exercise their Christian freedom in the ways that they see fit. Paul isn't in the business of micromanaging the affairs of these Christians, and really neither is any elder in the business of, of observing every little detail of life within somebody's Christ, Christian walk, within their Christian life. There is trust and confidence concerning a believer, of course, that he will make decisions aided by the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, in the testimony of the word of God, but yet there should always be as the driving force behind all of our decisions for the Christian, which is, of course, a desire to have our lives patterned after holiness, after Christ-likeness, and after seeking for the betterment of your brother and sister. You know, my Christian friend, when you are away from this body of believers throughout the rest of the week, some of you are returning back to Christian families. Many of you have the blessed privilege of having your entire family here on the Lord's Day. And then when you depart from here throughout the rest of the week, some of you are honored and privileged to be inundated back into Christian families. And therefore, we know that there is still great influence that many of us have over other believers or in front of other believers. And you may have the right to do what you please, to conduct yourselves freely so long as it's not sinful, but certainly we know that the influence we have concerning the upbuilding of our brothers and sisters and the upholding of integrity of our Christian witness for the glory of Christ is not simply a matter of sinning or not sin. But we know that our conduct matters. Our words matter. Our actions and our decisions are hugely influential towards those in whom we may consider the weaker brother. So, just because one has the right within the Christian life, has rights within the Christian life, doesn't automatically necessitate the full utilization of these rights simply because they can. Let me say that again. Just because one has rights within the Christian life doesn't automatically necessitate the full utilization of these rights simply because you know that you can. Selfish motivation is never a biblical virtue. And if one has in the forefront of their minds and intentions to serve the church, to, to, to do good to those who you may influence to raise up and build up a child of God within the congregation for their sanctification, then we certainly should be in the business of shaping and modeling our lives patterned after what causes a brother or sister to have a good conscience before God. We should be willing to refrain from certain things that even though our conscience may permit it, love would compel us to make necessary adjustments in order to count others 
more significant than ourselves. Maybe some of us need some help with that and need to really remember that. That because our conscience permits something doesn't mean that we should automatically do it. There might need to be some serious necessary adjustments to make in order to count others more significant than ourselves. Paul says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat foods offered to idols? So here we see Paul fleshing this idea out even more so, what we're talking about here. He gives the example of this supposed strong Christian seated in a temple of pagan worship, probably surrounded by all kinds of pagans. And the strong Christian can supposedly say, look, all these idols are just statues. They're just carved out of stone. And this food in front of me, although it has been offered and sacrificed, it's absolutely meaningless because I know that there is but one God and I am a strong and committed man of God and I plan to enjoy myself unscathed from these influences. I mean, this guy's sitting in the temple. He's surrounded by pagans, pagan statues, eating meat that has been offered and sacrificed. And he says, look, I'm a strong and committed man of God. I'm going to be in the midst of this, and I'm going to be unscathed from any of these influences. But yet the Apostle Paul says, aren't you then creating an influence towards one who has a weaker conscience? Aren't you creating an influence for that weaker Christian? If a brother or sister sees you engaged in behavior that they find, deeply troubling, deeply tempting, and as we mentioned, maybe even strong connotations and connections to their past life. Will you then proceed with the mentality, I do what I want so long as I'm happy? I mean, is is this really Christian virtue? If someone says, well, they need to suck it up and just deal with the fact that what bothers them doesn't bother me. I mean, that's very immature. That's very simple-minded, self-absorbed. Now, I I do have to say that in some instances, this can be an okay thing. Look, if somebody's coming down on you because you're not wearing a tie to church or you have certain, um, you dress a certain way or your shoes look different than theirs or whatever it is, and somebody's bringing this upon you, well, that's a whole different situation. That's that's trivial matters there. That, that's really just irrelevant. But we are talking, of course, about substantial realities here. Substantial realities. So much so, so substantial. Now listen to what Paul says here in verses 11 and 12. Listen to his language. He says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother, listen, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, what does he say? You sin against Christ. So Paul is saying that actually by this very knowledge that you possess as the supposed stronger, more mature Christian and the supposed endurance that you have, that allows you to lounge in the company of pagans in the temple and to indulge in these meats, 
that have been given up in sacrifice to Satan with no conviction, with no empathy, no sensitivity towards the brother. Paul says that this knowledge that you possess and this supposed maturity and strength that you possess could potentially end up destroying another brother or sister in the Lord. Now, the sober reality concerning this text here is that the commentaries I consulted about this word destroyed, which I know many of your translations say, I believe says perish, is that the Greek that is used here for this word destroyed or perish, this word or this phrase, it actually has no relevance to the connection of unbelievers merely being tempted back into sin. It actually doesn't, according to the Greek phrase and its and its meaning being translated into English, it doesn't actually refer to one drifting back into paganism. It's actually the same Greek phrases that are in reference to being destroyed in hell. The Greek phrases are the same words translated as being cast into hell. So, of course, this is very serious. Paul is saying that the consequences to the Christian for you ignoring your brother and sister and demonstrating a callousness towards them, treating their convictions as irrelevant, shaming, even shaming the weaker brother, and wounding his conscience by your stiff-necked decisions to please yourself in the name of Christian liberty can actually be the very means of destroying that brother one in whom Christ died for, according to the text. And the text here says that Christ died for that person. Now, we know that Christ doesn't die for every man equally. We know this because we know our Bibles. Christ doesn't make atonement for the sins of those who perish in hell. Rather, Christ lays down his life for the sheep. Christ uniquely and specifically dies for the elect. And Paul is saying that you might be the very channel by which someone is so turned off to Christ, so put out by your flagrant disregard for them, that it actually ends up destroying them because they eventually apostatize, and which, of course, then this evidences the fact that Christ never truly died for them. Or it means that you act in such a way that it destroys them in the sense that they do fall away. They return to their former life of paganism. They live wretchedly, but ultimately they will be raised up on the last day. But either one, either option is a tragedy. Either option is a miserable option. And either option brings shame upon a good Christian witness, upon a humble and loving disposition. It brings shame upon Christ in proper, pious, selfless conduct for the sake of the household of God. I mean, whatever direction you want to interpret those verses, the outcome, the outcome is with the stronger brother as the accomplice to the downfall of the weaker brother. Now think about your own life. 
Are there instances in your life right now wherein you fit this criteria? I mean, your conduct at work in the spheres of influence that you have? Like I said, many of you are blessed beyond measure to enter into a Christian family throughout the week. I mean, are there influences that you have that are in this direction? Do you fit this criteria? So we see that in closing, Paul says, thus sinning, verses 12 and 13, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Well, Paul really draws out the heart of the matter here in this instance. He says, you're actually sinning against your brother. You're sinning against your brother. And this should pump the brakes on any one of us who argues that it is completely meaningless how your brother or sister receives you and your conduct and actions in terms of exercising your Christian freedoms and liberties. Paul plainly says that you are sinning against your brother and wounding his conscience. Now, I admit that he's not, Paul's not specifically talking about any activity itself. You know, Paul thus far has not said that eating meats in and of itself is sinful. He's not talking about the activity itself. He's not saying that if you go to the bar and have a drink, that, you're, that it's sin, or if you watch a certain movie, that it's sin. He's not giving a, a vice list of activities that would render you sinful. But the point here should be obvious. It is the lack of love, the lack of compassion with a brother, the lack of carefulness, of self-examination concerning how you might be perceived by a weaker brother, the lack of brotherly love and the carnal reactions one has towards a brother, certainly that is what is sinful. The fact that you wound your brother, you disregard them, certainly any of these behaviors have nothing at all to do with the spiritual prosperity of your brother and of the church. But then Paul goes on, very briefly in closing, Paul sticks the dagger a little deeper in here. And he says, when you sin, yes, you sin against your brother, but ultimately you sin against Christ himself. If sinning against your brother wasn't enough, well, you actually are sinning against Christ, the groom to the bride, the head of the church, the redeemer and savior of that brother. May it be that we would never sin against Christ in that way. And let the meditations of our heart and mind and the resolution of our lives be that which Paul declares next, where he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You see, Paul says, holiness at all costs. Self-sacrifice to the bitter end. Selfless living, the crucified life, 
laying down my life for the church, honoring Jesus in my body, fixating upon the prosperity of my brothers, my brother's sanctification, my brother's conscience, my brother's purity. That is what I am after. That is what Paul is after. And that is what we need to be after. Paul says, if eating meat causes a man to sin, then forget the meat. I don't care about eating meat. I love my brother more than I love pork. I love my brother more than exercising all aspects of my Christian freedom because it's not about you. It's about your brother and sister. It's about Christ's glory and the blessed prosperity of his precious church. So may God help us all to be mature in this way and to be very careful in these matters. And may it be our supreme focus as it was Paul's, as was his admonition to the church that whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, we do all for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.